Welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. When was the last time you got really angry? And how did that go for you? Was it a positive experience or not? And do you and your partner know how to use your anger to foster growth in your connection? The reason I'm asking is that today's guest is Harriet Lerner, clinical psychologist and author of the classic book, The Dance of Anger, which has sold over 3 million copies worldwide. Harriet is one of the world's most trusted experts on the topic of relationships, and her work has inspired countless others on the topics of anger, intimacy, trust, fear, courage, vulnerability, you name it. Today, we're going to dive deep to talk about how to make your anger a force for good in your relationship. And we'll also be offering you a chance to win a free copy of Harriet's book, The Dance of Anger. On top of that, you'll also get some words of wisdom that aren't just about anger, but that are also about how to identify and change the patterns that are holding you back in your relationship. Harriet Lerner, thank you so much for being here with us on Relationship Alive. It's a pleasure to be with you. Excellent. Well, let's get started and let's let's jump right in to the dance of anger. I'm I'm curious if you can just start by giving an overview of what is anger and what is it useful for? Well, Anger is considered a negative emotion, but in fact it's not. It's simply something we feel, and it's part of a larger emotional experience that makes us human. And what it's good for is anger serves two essential purposes. One, it helps us to define the self. This is who I am, this is what I believe, this is where I stand. And the other purpose it serves is that anger is a vehicle for change, whether it's personal change or social or or political change. Action signals the necessity for change, that we, um, in the same way that physical pain tells us to take our hand off the hot stove, the pain of our anger preserves the dignity and integrity of the self. So it's a very important emotion, not that we use it in these two important ways, but potentially it's a very useful emotion. So you mentioned that that we don't necessarily use it that way. What are some common ways that anger ends up being used that don't serve that useful purpose that you just described? Well, when I was writing The Dance of Anger, um, and it is a woman's guide to anger, although it's equally useful for men, my working title actually was Nice Ladies and Bitches. So, <laughs> and Nice Ladies and bitches, uh, bitches in quotes. And that actually captures the two ways that, that we mismanage anger. So in the nice lady category, we avoid anger and conflict at all costs. We give in, we go along, we don't rock the boat. And it's not just anger and conflict that we avoid. We avoid any clear statement of self 
you know, this is who I am, these are the things that I will and won't do, we avoid any clear statement of self that we think will rock the boat of a relationship. So that would be the nice lady category, which also Mm -hmm. fits men, especially in marriage. Yeah. Um, And the, the, quote, bitch category are those of us who get angry with ease but getting angry is getting nowhere or it's even making things worse. So we're caught up in endless cycles of fighting, complaining, and blaming that go nowhere. Yeah, and I like how you're... Actually, I'm I'm curious because I, of course, noticed in reading rereading your book that it's directed mostly at women, and yet the more that I was contemplating it, it, it feels like... I'm wondering if the the face of how anger and gender are related, if that has shifted since you wrote the book. I think it's shifted, but not enough. Um, when I first wrote The Dance of Anger, anger was very taboo for women. And I, I think that we still live in a culture where um, we're more comfortable with women who are guilty and apologetic and self-doubting, and we're more comfortable with those women than with women who are angry on our own behalf and want to challenge the status quo. So it's interesting when I speak, for example, to college women about feminism, they don't want to use the F word. You know, they don't want to call themselves feminists, even if they are because they're so afraid of being seen as, quote, one of those angry women, one of those, you know, male-hating, castrating, ball-breaking, strident. You know, we have so many pejorative terms still to describe women who are angry at men. And interestingly, we don't have the same terms to describe men who are angry and aggressive with with women. Mm. So I, I've gotten better, but not enough. We have these words for men that are more just acknowledging the fact that they're angry. I mean, we might call a guy a dick or whatever, but but that's not necessarily about women. That That's a guy being angry in general. Um, well, what's versus... really interesting, Neil, is if you think of the two words that we call men, you know, bastard, son of a bitch, these words actually blame the mother. <laughs> mm. So they're interesting terms. Um, so I think anger is still more taboo for women. Not I think, anger is still more taboo for women. Yeah, and perhaps for men, it's less about anger itself being taboo, but there's still and I I hear from this with clients all the time and listeners for the podcast where, you know, the guy may feel totally fine getting angry, but actually handling that anger in a productive way, that's a totally different story. Right. And what I see as a therapist, and I see this especially in couples or in marriage, that men, um, they lose their voice. They Mm. don't speak out, and that very often men are more 
conflict avoidant. So they, um, you know, they say they don't like to talk, but they may actually be afraid of getting caught in a conversation that feels awful to them, and they tend to avoid conflict more than women. Women are more likely to move into the fray. So, you know, managing anger wisely and well is a universal challenge, I mean, for all of us. Well, let's dig deeper then and talk about how do you how do you transition from the non-productive ways of feeling anger um, and expressing anger into something that's more productive? That is a big question. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I wrote The Dance of Anger. You know, it's a big question, and it's the most important question. And maybe I should begin by saying that anger is a very difficult emotion, and it's it's so difficult because one reason is we are wired for fight or flight like all other mammals. So what that means is it just it just takes a little bit of anxiety or stress from any source and we will have a flight response. You know, we'll distance, we'll cut off, we'll stop speaking about things that matter. Or we'll have a fight response. So with just a little bit of stress, people very quickly get polarized. We divide into opposing camps. We get over-focused on what the other person is doing wrong and under-focused on our own creative options to move differently. So because it's part of the fight-flight response to get angry, we often don't even know what the real issue is. Like today could be the anniversary of my brother's death. I might not even be aware of that. I go home, I fight with my kids or my partner, um, and we may not even know with whom the real issue is. So I guess I I should start by saying that it's pretty normal that we're going to yo-yo back and forth between distance and blame, but the fact that it's normal doesn't mean that it's good for us. Right, and so if you... If you notice yourself getting angry, actually, let's just start at the that basic place, and we won't uh-huh. spend too long here, but uh-huh. what what would someone notice in themselves, because noticing is probably the key here, that, like, maybe even as a precursor to, like, uh-huh. full-blown, I'm uh-huh. angry, but if someone, if we're training ourselves to really pay attention, and we want to be able to make a shift to like, oh, I'm angry. And this means that it's a chance for me to get really clear on what I want or what I need or, you know, that that sort of shift. What would I notice going on with me that would be a sign that, oh, actually, I'm this is anger happening. This is my fight response. Well, Neil, actually, you've really identified one of the big challenges, which is to calm down enough to be a good observer. So you're not just coming out with your guns loaded. Mm. Um, The ability first to 
lower your reactivity. You know, we're all wired for reactivity and, and intensity. And actually, that's the worst time to speak out or uh, send that long, angry email to your sister. So I would say the first challenge is to notice your own clutching, your own anger, your own defensiveness, and to not speak at that time um, as a general rule. And then, you know, it's actually very useful to be able to think about your feelings and to be able to think about what is your part in this interaction and how can you change it? How can you do something different? Because one of the interesting things about humans is that if we're doing something with our anger that isn't working, do we stop, you know, and do something (laughs) different? Um, No. You know, people will continue for at least one lifetime doing more of the same. So whatever we're doing, we might be pursuing or arguing or trying to reason with the person, or we might be blaming or instructing or advising or fixing or... uh, And if it's not helping, um, you know, even rats in a maze will learn to change their behavior if they hit a dead end a few times. (laughs) And in this regard, humans... I'm not comfortable with where this is going right now, Harriet. (laughs) Yes, it's where it's going is that humans are not as intelligent as laboratory animals in this regard. So the ability to observe an interaction and see that it's not working, you know, to be able... I mean, here's an example of uh, a friend I was talking to where every time she goes home to visit her parents... Her mother gives her a lecture about religion and about going to church, and they always get into the same fight. And I gave her the challenge of going home and doing something different, which, by the way, is very difficult, so that when her mother, you know, would say to her, why are you in therapy? You should be praying instead, and, you know, would give her the typical lecture what my friend did is instead of arguing or fighting, she became curious about what religion meant to her mother and asked her mother questions about, you know, like, where did you first develop your ideas about religion and how are your ideas different than your mom's were? And how did your mom react when you left the church, you know, to go to this other church? And she did something very different. And it required a bit of what I call creative pretending because it required her in learning more about what religion meant to her mother and the legacy of how religion, religious ideas got passed down the generation. It it didn't, It didn't feel natural to her. It wasn't her natural way would be to, you know, tell her mother to shut up already about Mm it. It was very, very interesting. And it takes so much courage 
you know, because in our families, we sort of go round and round like a broken record. It takes a lot of courage to get creative and to look at one's own part in the pattern and decide you're going to do something different. So if you're the fix-it person and you're always giving advice, you might experiment with not giving any advice when your, you know, brother tells you this and that and he has this problem, you know, to be able to scratch your head Columbo fashion and say, you know, that sounds really hard. And what options have you, you know, thought about? Um, you know, that, that sounds very simple, but if you're an advice giver, if you're a fixer, if you're the older sister of a sister, for example, it can take the most tremendous courage and clarity um, to back off from the I know best attitude and the advice giving and to um, relate to that person's competence to solve their own problems or not. So I would say, you know, going back to your original difficult question of what do we do, (laughs) that first we calm down and then we come really good, we become good observers of ourselves and the other person in that distance blame stuff we get into. And then we have to get self-focused. And by self-focused, I don't mean self-blaming. I mean that we can observe ourselves and change our part in the patterns that bring us anger and pain. Because even if you're only 2% to blame, that's the part that you can change. It's, it's that 2%. Yeah, and like any dance, one person shifts what they're doing and the whole the whole figure that the two are doing together completely shifts as well. Right, right. And it doesn't mean that the other person is going to change the way you want them to. Mm. And it doesn't mean that you're going to get approval and applause. For example, if you're very mad at your mom because she's being so demanding and you become more self-focused and figure out what you can and can't do. So instead of being mad at your mom, you go to your mom and in a very loving way, you say, you know, you basically define the things that you can do and the things that you're not able to do because it just leads you to tired and depleted and you'll be crawling in that bed with her. Um, You know, what is your mother going to say? Is she going to say, oh, I'm so happy that you're defining yourself in this new assertive fashion. You know, this is wonderful that you're clarifying a bottom line with me. No, it, it doesn't work that way. So that when you move from anger to really having a very clear position that you can state calmly um, because anything that you want to say can actually be said, uh, 
can be said in a mature, calm way. You're not going to get approval and applause. And that's the point that a lot of people get defensive or they strike back or they go back in the old fights. So in the dance of anger, I also help you to deal with the counter moves, the, the resistance to change from within the self and from the other person. You know, because people want to change and then we want the other person to really like the changes we're making and it doesn't work that way. Right. So for our listeners, the counter moves are, let's say you are in a, a, a dynamic, a pattern with your partner and so they're always giving you advice and you don't want, you know, you're always one down and, and the recipient of that advice. And so you decide, well, I'm going to, I'm going to make a shift here. So, and you, you read the dance of anger, you may, or listen to this conversation and you make a subtle shift, um, that's about clarifying your needs and your position. And then, um, your partner, rather than the applause, will potentially offer some counter moves, which are ways that they try to hook you back into that pattern that you're, that you're used to having with each other. Right? Right. So, so when you, uh, and that's something that I was, uh, I read and I was like, oh, that's brilliant. It's like thinking strategically. So how do you help someone prepare for what their partner's counter moves might be and and in a way that keeps them um, from personalizing it because that seems like it's really key is to you know not get even more angry that they're just trying to hook you back but to to figure out how to how to stand ground and hang in there with with the the new position that you you're staking out for yourself well, one really has to have the the motivation to to change. And often people have to be in a lot of pain before they're going to do something different and hang in. And what you're saying about not taking it personally is it's really the hallmark of maturity to understand that you know, that often when family members behave badly or someone behaves very badly, it has to do with them and it has to do with their own level of anxiety. And, you know, even appreciating that fact is is very useful. So, it and also if you take a new position you have to be prepared to stand behind it. For example, say I was working with someone in therapy and her husband would, um, he would drink and he would call her drunk in the middle of the night and she would have to go and get him because she was afraid, you know, if he got in the car, he'd kill someone. Or She had all these excuses about how she always had to, you know, get out of bed and, and go pick him up when he was drinking and she took a new position with him, and um, actually this was one of many, but it was the first. And she said, Joe, you know, if you call me drunk in the middle of the night again, I'm going to call the police to get you because I can't come and get you anymore. It's not, 
an acceptable way for me to be in a relationship. I don't feel good about myself or you or us. So I need you to know that, you know, I'm, I'm going to call the police. Now, to take that position, she needed to be prepared to do that, um, which she was. So when we take a position, I mean, here's another one, you know, a woman I was working with in therapy whose sister was suicidal, and her sister would say, but don't tell mom, don't tell mom. And my client finally said to her, to her sister, you know, if you're suicidal, Claire, I can't keep it a secret from mom and dad. I just can't keep such a big secret and I can't be helpful enough to you all by myself. And also, if I kept it a secret, I'd feel like I was participating in your hurting yourself or taking your life and I I couldn't live with that. And, you know, of course, Claire was furious. You know, it's like, I'll never tell you anything again. And, and, and how can you tell mom and dad? And my client was able, I mean, that's a, you know, a, a typical response. And my client was able to say, you know, I understand that you're furious with me, but I, I can't keep such a big secret. You know, I just can't do it. And then Claire said, well, I'll never tell you anything again. I mean, these are typical anxiety, (laughs) reactivity counter moves. Right. And my client said, you know, we're sisters. And what's most important for me is that we can tell each other the truth. And I do want you to let me know when you're feeling suicidal. And I, 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 you know, I understand your anger. And I just can't keep it a secret because it makes me too anxious and I I can't do it. So, you know, this is is a very, very difficult challenge, which we call defining a bottom line. Mm. And a bottom line is where your beliefs, your priorities, your values, what you can and can't do those places where it's not negotiable under relationship pressures. And it's very different than, you know, throwing out an ultimatum in the middle of a fight, like, God damn it, you know, you do that once more, I'm divorcing you. It's really, um, it's really a place where you're in your body and where you can say to the other person, like, the example I gave of my client who said, I, you know, I, I just can't keep that big a secret. And I never should have said I would. That, that was my mistake. Um, that's a bottom line position, and that's very complicated. Uh, I talk about that a lot in The Dance of Anger because it's easier to be mad at the other person then it is to get really clear about who we are, what we believe, what we can and can't do, and without anger or fighting, be able to say to your brother, and without delivering a small lecture, you know, I, I can't loan you any more money. You know, I just can't do it. I, 
you know, I know I'm rich compared to you, but I have my own economic worries and it's just not something I can do anymore. So that's, this is a, you know, hard one. Can you talk for a moment about the process that one goes through to, to get clear about what you need and what your limits are and, and in particular, I'm also thinking about uh, doing nothing as a strategy. So maybe that would be a good entry point to what if you don't even know what your position really is? I think that it's often a position of great courage to not know what your position is. It, it's very courageous. So, for example, I was working with a woman in therapy and her husband was alcoholic and he would make, you know, sort of put his toe in the water in treatment attempts, but uh, not very seriously. And she got clear about the fact that she did not know um, She didn't know how long she could live with it. She didn't know whether she could ever end the marriage. They had little children. And it was a very courageous position for her to say to him, you know, you're you're drinking. I know that it's not acceptable to me. I grew up with addiction in the family. Um, And I am in therapy struggling with getting clear about how long I can live with this or not live with this um, in terms of staying in the marriage and and feeling good about myself and you and and our marriage. And, you know, the, the honest truth is at this point, I'm not clear how long I can go on and, and tolerate this, but I'm working on it. You know, and I think that's a very courageous position to acknowledge to oneself or the other person that you're not clear yet. So it's it's sort of like using anger as your bellwether to say, there's something here that isn't right. And I don't totally know what it is yet, but I'm now I'm asking the question of what that is. Right. Or, I, or in this case, I know what it is that's not right. I don't mm-hmm. want to be in a marriage where a person is over drinking mm. uh, and not getting treatment. But what I don't know is right now, I do not know what I'm going to do. You know, right now I'm sort of, in, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. So I, I think it's, it's brave to recognize, for example, that you don't, no. Um, you don't know yet. For, you know, rather than just being mad at the other person. Right. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is the not knowing is actually a constructive step. It's not like, well, now yeah. I got to just do something. It's, it's okay to not it's, do something. Right, right. It's not like, you know, women say to me, what's wrong with me? You know, my friends are all telling me to leave this jerk, and I think about leaving him, and then I just feel I can't do it, and, you know, I'm 
it, it's like that can be a position of courage to not know yet and to be willing to struggle over time to get clearer because there are some issues in our lives that are really hard to get clear about. You know, like how much can you do, for example, if you have an aging and elderly parent who has a lot of needs, who wants to come live with you or, you know, wants whatever it is, um, it, it can take a while to struggle with the very, very important question of what's your responsibility to a family member say to an elderly parent, and what's your responsibility to yourself and the quality and direction of your own life? And there's no big book that has the answers to these questions, you know, about what the good wife or the good husband or the good daughter or son does. And I think sometimes we get very mad at the other person because we're not clear ourselves about whether to take a little thing, whether we're comfortable saying, you know, I can't come pick you up at the airport. I'm too uncomfortable driving and waiting. And, you know, I I know you expect that and I'm sorry to let you down, but I can't do it, you know. I mean, that, that can be very difficult because, again, the other person is not going to love you for it, for your new assertiveness. And, right. You know, Neil, the, the, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the the thing about a bottom line is, because I've been talking about a bottom line in terms of very big things like alcoholism or, you know, do you get divorced or what's your responsibility to an elderly parent? And actually, a bottom line is with us every day in a relationship. And if we don't have a clear bottom line, and instead, we have an anything-goes policy. We're mad all the time. We complain all the time. But really, we don't clarify bottom line. The relationship is going to go downhill. And let me give you an example of a very, very simple bottom line that I share in my, my latest book, Marriage Rules, where uh, this is with, with my husband, Steve. So it was my week to do the dishes. You know, we alternate weeks and to clean up after dinner. And I hate cleaning the pots and pans. Like I do everything else and then I leave the pots and pans, but it's my job. So, you know, at first he was sort of nagging, like the days went on and the pots and pans are like accumulating in the sink. And he's saying, this is your job. This is your week. And I didn't do them. So Friday rolls around And I wanted to go out to the movies with Steve because there was a great movie playing and only on Friday. So I said, let's go to the movie. And Steve said, and this was a bottom line, he said, you know, nope. (laughs) He said, no business as usual. It's Friday. You know, no business as usual until you clean the pots and pans. And, you know, he didn't say it with anger. He didn't say, like, if you don't clean the pots and pans, I'm, I'm going to divorce you. He didn't call me James. <laughs> but he calmly went downstairs and, you know, played guitar. And it was very clear to me that, in fact, no business as usual was going to occur <laughs> if I didn't do the pots and pans. And so it's like 
it's it wasn't like a big heavy thing, but it was the bottom line because Steve was like really in his body when he said that he really meant it. You know, when he said we're not going to the movies and no business as usual, he really meant it. So one can take a bottom line position around a very small thing. Uh, You don't have to cross your arms in front of your chest, you know, and go around taking bottom line positions about everything. And in fact, you know, the thing that's wonderful about Steve is he's very light. He's a very light spirit. But when he means something, and he's very flexible and he'll accommodate a lot, like a good middle child that he is. But when he <laughs> means something, I I know when he means it, just like a child knows. And the opposite of that would be the person who, you know, the pots and pans are piling up and they're just complaining and fighting and blaming and you know, saying how irresponsible, you know, the other person is, and I can never rely on you. You said you'd clean the pots and pans and you didn't, you know, what's wrong with you? Um, so I, I, I guess I just want to stress that it's good to start with a very small thing. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in small steps to change and that substantive change usually occurs slowly. So a lot of the examples in the dance of anger may seem very small. You know, it can seem like a small thing to be able to say to your mom, you know, that hurt my feelings. And then not say anything else. (laughs) It's so Mm. hard to, to say things in one sentence when they're angry. Uh, it takes it takes so much courage, you know. We're we're really talking today about very courageous acts of change because it's easy to just blame someone and get mad at them. Right, and what's so interesting to me is that I think if you asked most people, what's your ideal for your relationship? Is it to be locked in a pattern of? pursuing and distancing or um, anger and blame (laughs) like most people would probably say no like that's actually not what I want and yet and yet it's an act of courage to somehow break out of that when the reward for that courage well you don't necessarily know like you said it may not be applause but for for two people in a relationship where they both actually want to be in the relationship then those acts of courage are really the only way that they elevate out of those those patterns that just keep them in fear and in trying to control each other or control their circumstances. Right, exactly. And part of the courage, like we're talking about, is that you don't know how the other person will respond so that you really want to operate out of your best thinking and your best self and your core values. Like I had a client in therapy and her mom was cut off from mom's sister. That is my client's Aunt Jo. There was a cutoff. Mom didn't speak to Aunt Jo. And my client decided that she really 
needed to have a relationship with her aunt, or at least she didn't want to pretend like her aunt didn't exist. So she did make some connection with her aunt. At, at some point, her mom found out and, you know, just said, how can you do this to me? You know how Aunt Joe treated me. And, you know, my client said, Mom, you know, I know that you and Aunt Joe have had a very painful time together and things have been very intense. But for me, it's just too painful to not be speaking to a family member. And I, you know, got in touch with Aunt Joe because I just can't deny the existence of someone in my own family. And I know you're mad at me for visiting her. And, um, you know, I understand that, but I can't pretend that I don't have an aunt. And in this case, her mom was so furious. This is a family with a lot of cutoffs. Mm. And her mom said to her, if you are going to see my sister, you do not have a mother. And, Whoa. you know, that's really pulling at all stops to threaten cutoffs, you know, between right. mother and daughter. And my client, though, in a very calm way, I mean, it was very difficult over time, was able to, to hang in with her mom and to, um, you know, to, she actually went over and gave her mom a big hug and said, Mom... You know, I know we come from a family where a lot of people stop talking forever to other people. I just want you to know that I love you and that nothing in the world is more painful to me than to think that you're not going to speak to me again. Um, But it was a very scary process (laughs) over time. So, you know, Neil, I'm glad we're talking about the fact that, that, that this stuff, this stuff, isn't easy and Mm. uh, and yet you know this is what it means to grow up that you can operate out of your core values and beliefs and take a position that's not blaming or you know not telling other people what they should do you know she didn't say to her mom you know mom you should really make up with your sister this is crazy you know that, that you're not speaking to her she did not tell her mom what to do she defined her own self. She said, it's just too painful for me to not be speaking to a family member. Um, you know, it was actually years of therapy before she could do that. And, uh, you know, readers of The Dance of Anger, when they write and tell me some of the things they've done, and some of them might seem small to our listeners, I mean, you know, it's very moving when people get the courage to do something different. Right. And not out of a position of cutoff or distance or blame. Right. Yeah. And to and to be willing to see what happens next. Right. Um, I'm curious. There. One thing that I just want to point out because we've brought it up a few times in this conversation, which has been um, the the strategy that you offer in the dance of anger of going back to your to your family of origin, if that's possible for you, and using it as an opportunity to explore what sort of the legacy that's been handed to you of how people in your family, the people that contributed to how you are in the world in terms of 
um, nurture anyway versus nature. I guess it's both nature and nurture. Um, to to find out how they've handled their anger or how and so you that I think really helps depersonalize it in a way so that when you're faced with um, your spouse giving you um, a bottom line about something, you can put that in in the context of well, like this is how um, this is how my mother handled conflict and this is how her sister handled conflict or this is how my dad handled conflict and suddenly you're you're able to resource outside of yourself and maybe it's just occurring to me right now like maybe that's also about helping you get less wrapped up in your story about how you should act in that situation and help present you with just more possibilities or just even the idea that there could be more there could be more possibilities and and there are always more possibilities, even when we think we've tried everything and, quote, nothing works. There's always something else to do. And since we're, we're winding down, I would say it is very useful to know the history of an issue, whatever you're struggling with, um, whether it's taking care of an aging parent which is a point, by the way, at which sibling relationships fall apart around caring for an elderly parent or in the aftermath, right in the aftermath of that parent's death, that it helps to know how that issue has gone in the previous generations. You might learn that for three generations, sisters have stopped talking to each other when it comes to the theme of um, caring for an elderly parent and things come down the, down the pipes. And it's also part of knowing who you are. So the woman I talked about much earlier who started rather than just fighting with her mother because she couldn't stand hearing her mother talk about religion, started asking about religion, her grandmother and great-grandmother and sort of how have religious beliefs evolved over the generations. And um, so, yeah, it's a bigger perspective to know where you're coming from and to know how, um, how your family of origin, going back as far as you can learn about it, have managed anger and what the hot issues are in your family and, and so forth. Yeah, and what better way to inspire your own courage is to find places where your other family members have also been courageous or had to do something that was uncomfortable and either, you know, they they live to regret it, the what they did or and you learn from that or they can offer you a shining example of of how you can do that for yourself. Exactly. So, for example, if you're having trouble finding your voice, for example, with your husband, and you look at your own genogram, sort of your own family tree, and you see that in every marriage, there's always been one person who's been very, very accommodating, rather than two partners who have a voice, you know, it's not easy to be a pioneer, So you give yourself even more credit if you're doing something pioneering that your own mother wasn't able to do or your own grandmother, um, because it's not easy to be a pioneer in your family. 
So one last thing I'd like to ask, and we could talk about this for a long time because it's, it's such an interesting topic. I'm wondering if you have like a final hint for people listening, if they, if they notice a pattern going on in their relationship. Like, for instance, we, and we've mentioned a few times pursuing versus distancing. Um, one person being the, the one who's always trying to get something in the relationship and the other one who's trying to push something away. But that's just an example. But you notice a pattern coming up. What's a, what's a healthy way to, to bring that, well, to your own attention, but also to your partner's attention in a way that can lead to positive change? You don't necessarily have to bring it to the other person's attention because the best way to get the other person's attention is to try out a new you and do something different. So if you're always pursuing your husband for more closeness and connection and your husband is more of a cat, you know, more of a sort of private person, um, you'll get his attention most if you just get off his radar screen, not in a cold and angry way, but do the experiment of, you know, going out with girlfriends, doing some new things, you know, getting the city yourself and letting him know that, you know, you're not looking to him to whatever, fill up your empty bucket or so forth. You know, a change um, in your own self over time, you know, we are really wired for wanting immediate results. Um, but you don't need to talk with the other person about the pattern. Not that you can't. Uh, it's quite powerful to um, try out a new you. And there are a lot of ideas for that in the dance of anger. And the ideas, you know, I'm not saying you just try out anything new, like let's throw red paint on Anne Francis, <laughs> see what happens. Um, but once you understand from the dance of anger how relationship patterns operate, how they, say, how they stay stuck, and you know what you can do to get them unstuck, pick something small. Let me, just let me say as my last thing to, sure. to pick something small and try it out and see how well you can stay with it when the counter moves start rolling in and the other person says, you're wrong, you're crazy, you're selfish, how can you say that, you're going to kill your mother, I mean, whatever it is, you know, start with something small that you think and believe and, you know, and see if you can stay with it. Yes, and I, I love it. I, and I love the idea that, that you actually, that the most powerful thing you can do is to simply have that awareness for yourself and to, and to choose a small new action. Um, Harriet, thank you so much for coming on today's show. Um, Harriet Lerner's book, The Dance of Anger, is a, a modern classic in terms of relationships and how to navigate um, your own anger and turn it into something really positive for yourself and for the people around you. 
Um, we are offering a free copy of The Dance of Anger to one lucky listener. So if you are listening to this episode within the first week of its airing, please download the show guide or text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444, and um, that will qualify you to win a copy of The Dance of Anger. So thank you so much for that, Harriet. And um, great. And and then if you want the show guide or just to go over the the salient points that Harriet and I have talked about in this episode, you can visit her website, which is HarrietLearner.com to find out more about her. Or um, you can find links to that as well as her books on Amazon, etc. from my website. And you can go to NeilSatin.com slash anger. Um, and that's where you can find this episode and all the relevant details. So um, thanks again, Harriet Lerner, for being on today's show. It's been such a gift to have you here with a, a frank discussion about anger and, and how to make it uh, positive for, for our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.